You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to grab that. And let's turn to the book of Genesis this evening. Genesis chapter 6, specifically, is where we find ourselves tonight. Moving right along in our study of God's Word here in the first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7 is what we are going to endeavor to be studying tonight as we move through and really what is a two-part study covering the events of the flood that we see here moving through chapter 6 all the way through chapter 9. And so if you're taking notes tonight, the simple title for tonight and for the, and for the next study as well is going to be the flood part one. The next one, of course, will be part two. But taking notes tonight, the title for this message is simply The Flood, Parts One. And you know, as we have discovered moving through the book of Genesis thus far, that it was written by Moses, who actually wrote the first five books of the Bible. And the theme of the book of Genesis is, of course, beginnings, where we see the literal beginning of everything, except, of course, for God, because He was before and in the beginning, and everything is because, well, He created it. And we have seen thus far in the book of Genesis that the book of Genesis breaks up nicely into two distinct sections, each with four subsections. There in chapters 1 through 11, we see the first section of Genesis, we classify it by four great events. That of first, the formation in Genesis 1 through 2, the literal formation of everything. And then after that comes the fall, the section that we just came out of last week from chapters 3 to 5. From chapter 6 to 9, we're going to be looking at the flood, starting here tonight and moving into the next time that we're together in the book of Genesis. And after that, well, after that comes the fallout from rebellion, where we're going to see the after-flood population, they're moving in the world that they have and being disobedient, quite honestly, to the Lord's command, and we'll see what happens because of that. And we see that in chapters 1 through 11, but then from chapters 12 to 50, we move from four great events, then on to honing in on four great men. Where the Bible, what it does is it hones in on four great men, all from the same family. There, as we see the start of the Jewish nation, God's chosen people there in the book of Genesis. And that starts, of course, with Abraham. Then it goes to Isaac, after that Jacob, and then to Joseph. And again, spans from chapter 12 all the way to 50, as we look there at the start of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And we see that I've been studying that. And like I said, tonight we move into the third subsection of the first section. We're going to be looking at the flood. And as we open up tonight in chapter six, if you were with us last week for chapters four to five, you'll remember that last week was a, a great week of comparing and contrasting where we saw there the family of Cain as they come out of, as as the fall and the sin has entered into the world, we see the family of Cain that just moves forward in the flesh. And chapter five, well, we had the godly line of Seth that we got to follow. And man, as we saw that, we were encouraged to make choices, knowing that our choices, well, they matter. That sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. Our choices are not made in a vacuum. They affect us and they affect those around us. And chapter five last week, that's a great encouraging chapter. I love it. We see Enoch there walking with God. We see the line of Seth just following after the Lord. And as we come to chapter six tonight, it is as if that chapter is all but forgotten. It's like you go from chapter four, just straight over to chapter six, because what we open up with tonight as we start looking at the flood is a world that is out of control. 
A world that is dark and a world that is full of sin and evil running rampant throughout this world. And it is Noah, the man whose story we're going to be following through the flood narrative that we see living in this world and living out for the Lord. And we're going to talk extensively about that tonight. But as we open up here in chapter 6, if you're taking notes, the first thing that we're going to be looking at is Noah's world's. So if you will, let's pick up there in verse 1 of chapter 6. Let's read all the way through verse 8. We're going to pray one more time, and then we'll keep going. So Genesis 6 says, Now it came to pass that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose." And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this day. And God, thank you so much for, again, the opportunity, Lord, the freedom, the invitation that we have from you, God, just to run boldly to you, to come into your presence, Lord, to worship you as you are so worthy of worship. And God, to study your word, which in your kindness you have given to us, Lord, to speak to us and to lead our lives further in you. And I just thank you so much for these that have come out tonight, these precious men and women, Lord, to study your word. And I ask that tonight, as we endeavor to study, and as we endeavor to see, God, what your word has to say, that, Lord, you would be our teacher, that you would speak to us, that you would lead us and that God, having heard from you, we would want to live accordingly. And we ask for your help in that. Lord, we ask for your help as we study your word, knowing that, God, you are there to help us. You have sent the Holy Spirit to teach us the deep things of God. We learn that in your word, and we thank you for that. And we ask tonight that you would just do, do just that, and we ask it expectantly, knowing that you desire to grow us. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we read the opening verses of Genesis 6. It definitely paints a picture, a vivid picture for us, again, of a world that has gone dark. And as we're going to be introduced to Noah, we were at the last verse that we read, we look here at Noah's world that he is living in. And we see in the first verse that it talks about men multiplying on the face of the earth and daughters being born to them. And understand that as we read, we have to, and this may not be you, but if it is, we have to get out of our head The idea that Noah's world at this time is smaller than sometimes we can think that it is. You know, sometimes as we think of the pre-flood conditions, we think here of of not very many people, maybe a few villages just kind of scattered about the worlds. But understand that as the Bible says that men began to multiply on the face of the earth, that the population of the earth at this time, well, it was rather large. And you think about it, like just last week in chapter five, there were men who were living uh, six, seven, nine hundred years worth of age. And you can think about that if they have that long of a lifespan. Well, the time given to be able to, you know, have children, well, that was rather vast. 
And so with the amount of people, the lifespan that it was, and also too the need for more kids to be able to work the land and supply for a family in an agrarian society, well, understand that the world, Noah's world, it wasn't just a bunch of villages scattered about. It wasn't just a small little group of people here and there. No, this was a population that was huge. In fact, most scholars believe that the population of Noah's day was not too far off from our own day. The population of our world today was not too far off from where Noah was there and what Noah's world looks like. And verse 1, it gets us going, showing us that it was a world that was vast where there were many people. But it's verse 2 that stops us really right in our tracks and gives us some things to dive deeper into, some things to ponder and to see what they really are as we look closer at Noah's world. And if you're taking notes, something that sticks out to us that demands our attention is that little phrase, the sons of God. You see, the Bible tells us that during these days of rapid population expansion, that there was a problem with the ungodly intermarriage between the sons of God and the daughters of men. And we learn that from these marriages that something unnatural comes into existence. Did you notice that? Well, it says the Bible says that there were giants on the earth in those days, and this being a direct result of those intermarriages. And this has puzzled some for a long time, has been the reason of debate for centuries. I mean, as long as men have read the book of Genesis, they have debated over this little section right here. And the reason is because there are different views as to what these sons of God are and where these giants came from. And there are predominantly two schools of thought that are worth our attention tonight as this conversation could come up, as this conversation does come up, as you read the Bible and as you talk about the Bible, as you should talk about the Bible, with those around you. And one school of thought is to say that these sons of God, well, they are the godly line of Seth. That over the years, many have believed that the sons of God were that from the line of Seth that we see there in chapter 5. As those men that were mentioned there would have had more sons and daughters, that the sons of God, well, that was that godly line of Seth. And they, what they did is they saw the ungodly line of Cain and, and went and married into those families. We have a mixing of the good and the bad. And this can make sense in, in one's mind. I mean, you understand the Bible speaks often. We know of intermarriage or, or relationships or business transactions or just walking alongside of someone. Well, as believers, we're not to be yoked to the world. We're not to be yoked in a, in a commitment and in a marriage with that of the world. I mean, we see that in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's very simple. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? The Bible speaks in various places of unions between believers and unbelievers, of God's people and those that were rejecting the Lord. I mean, as we get further into the first five books of the Bible, we're going to see that as God's people come out of Egypt and are ready to go into the promised land, that God is going to speak to them to not marry into the families of those that are in the land they're going to take, take on, but to wipe them out, to go and to wipe out the civilizations that are before them so that they don't get caught up in the sin of the nations. And so we see that within the Bible, that the marriage, the union, the unequally, being unequally yoked together with unbelievers, well, that's a consistent thing. And so to see here that as the thought process, it, it makes sense. However, there's a problem. 
There's a problem where as you would see a, a marriage or you would see a union of those that are unequally yoked together producing problems, yes, and even big problems, well, understand that they wouldn't produce, number one, a reason really for God to wipe out all of civilization. Like there would be issues, but it's not really a, a big enough issue for God to send the flood that we know he's going to send. And the other thing is, it's not going to produce giant children. Like, like a marriage with unbelievers, a marriage where you are with someone that's not walking with the Lord, it's going to produce large problems. That is a fact, but it's probably not going to produce large children which is why many look at the sons of God as not being the godly line of Seth, but as being angelic beings that are intermarrying with the women of the earth, specifically that of fallen angels. And this is honestly a more accurate way to see the sons of God as either these demons, angels that are in rebellion to God, these fallen angels, and the daughters of men as being just that, of being mortal women who engage in sexual activity with these angels. You see, the phrase sons of God is used four times total in the Old Testament. And each time it clearly speaks there of angels. The first one, of course, is right here, what we're reading today. But the other three, all of them are found in the book of Job. If you're taking notes, jot down Job chapter 1, verse 6. Jot down Job chapter 2, verse 1. And then Job 38, 7. The first two of those, they really speak of the same thing. There is God is there in heaven. He's in the throne room. It says that the sons of God came before him there to present to him, to speak to him. And as it speaks there, the sons of God, well, it speaks of spiritual beings. It speaks of angels. And then in Job 38, 7, it speaks there of the heavens being filled with those who are singing of the Lord. And it speaks there of the sons of God, each time speaking of angels. Each time, speaking of angels, the scriptures in Job, as well as here, all point to the sons of God as being not godly men, but angels that have left their station, that are not holding to their proper domain. Exactly what Jude says. If you're familiar with the rest of the Bible, there in the New Testament, the, last, the second to last book before the last book of Revelation, what is known as Jude, this little one chapter book all about contending for the faith, well, Jude writes there about angels not keeping their proper domain. In verse 6, he says, And the angels who do not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, while well, he has reserved, speaking of the Lord, in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. We have recorded throughout the word of God of angels who are not where they are supposed to be sometimes who have left their proper domain, who are not in their place and space where they belong. And as such, the Lord, well, he has dealt with them and is ultimately going to deal with them one day there at the last day. And I believe fully that that is what we're seeing here, that the sons of God as represented in the rest of the Old Testament as angels, they here are first represented as these angels that come into the earth, have sexual relationships with these women. And as such, we see wicked men and we see giants that are born onto the earth. Now, I do understand, and having said all that, there is an objection that is offered to this understanding, found that an, an objection offered, excuse me, that is understandable when some people would look at this and say, well, I don't believe that it's angels because of what Jesus said there in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew 22, 30, it says, for in the resurrection, this is Jesus speaking here, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God and in heaven. 
And there's good thought behind this verse. Like you can understand the arguments to show us there that Genesis isn't talking about angels. However, Jesus said, never said that angels were sexless. He just said they don't give to give into marriage. He never said that they were sexless. Also as well, he's speaking of the angels in heaven. He's not saying anything about angels that are in rebellion. No, he's not saying anything about, about angels that have left their proper domain. He is speaking of angels that are still worshiping and following after him there in heaven. And we see also throughout the Bible, just to speak on the idea that angels could be sexless, uh, we see throughout the Bible several times where angels take on the form of men. I mean, just think about what we're going to study in a few weeks with Abraham. Abraham, as he's resting out outside of his tent in the heat of the day, he sees three, three um, travelers that are coming his way. And we learn through the course of the conversation that we see there that those travelers, well, two of them, well, they're angels. One of them we know is the angel of the Lord. What I believe fully is a Christophany, a, an Old Testament appearing of Jesus. But two of them are angels. And as such, they appear to, to Abraham as men. And then those same two angels, as you follow the train of that story, well, they go to Sodom. They go to Sodom there to speak to Lot about the judgment that is on its way to that city. And if you'll remember that story, you see that the men of Sodom, well, they see those angels, they see them as men, and they want to have sex with them. They want to have sexual relations with them. And as such, we see that story play out the way that it does, and they rebuke those men, and it's, it's, we'll, we'll get to it here actually pretty soon, so you can look forward to that. But the point is that the men, those angels, are seen to those men, to Abraham, and in various other places throughout the Bible, as men as an appearance of a man. And so it is not out of the realm of possibility. In fact, I believe it's the clearest explanation is that these were not of the godly line of Seth. But again, these were angels that had left their proper domain and had come and were having sexual relations with human women and thus seeing men that were born that were wicked, seeing giants that were born into this land. And that, understand, paints a, a more real picture as to why the Lord, why he reacts the way that he does why the Lord responds the way that he does, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But I want to remind us tonight, because this is a great reminder for us, that in the world that we live in, as we are humans and we are tangible, we see one another, we can touch one another. You know, oftentimes, and we've said this before, but it's worth reminding ourselves of, we can sometimes forget that there is a spiritual realm around us. There is a spiritual realm. Our Christian life, in fact, we've said before, is a supernatural thing. And as such, what we need to remember is that as we read the Bible, well, it is not out of the realm of possibilities to see spiritual beings moving through the text, nor should we think it weird that spiritual beings are in play today. We know from Ephesians that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we are in a spiritual battle that is roaring and has been rolling and roaring since forever. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge that and realize that as we walk in this life, this Christian life, that it's a supernatural life that we live in, something we should remember, something we should walk in as we navigate. And texts like this, well, they remind us of that. They remind us of that. And they also remind us, again, going back to that spiritual war, of the reality that we fight a spiritual war that has been waging for a very long time as Satan has desired to thwart the plan of God all the way from the beginning. All the way from before the beginning, I believe, as you see the fall there of Satan rebelling in heaven. And there as we see the fall, Satan coming and tempting Eve and tempting Adam to sin. And here, I believe fully, we see Satan again playing to and desiring to thwart the plan of God to bring in a Savior. 
You know, back in Genesis 3, as we saw there that God spoke to Adam and Eve and the serpent there as they were in the garden, he spoke to the serpent of the, of the woman's seed that was going to crush his head, speaking prophetically of the Messiah, of the Messiah that was going to come through humanity, coming through the woman. And as such, you can imagine Satan, well, well he didn't want that. He didn't want that. And so I see this directly as Satan seeking to muddy, seeking to violate and get rid of the line, any godly line from which the Messiah could come from. As he would there send the angels that were with him, that fell with him at the rebellion, and would send them there to see wicked and giant men born on the face of the earth. Which brings us back to our text and gives us great insight into why the Lord acts the way that he does. Because not only were there giants on the face of the land there in Noah's world, but also too what is noted very starkly for us is the wickedness of man. In verse 5 again, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that's a heavy statement. And that's a, very, that's, a, that's a heavy statement. The idea that every thought, that every intention of the heart, everything that mankind was thinking at that time was only, only rebellion, was only sin and rebellion and a desire to sin and to rebel, only sin and only evil. And it's a heavy statement that brings a heavy response from the Lord recorded there in verse six. As Moses, who is writing this down, says, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his hearts. The Lord was sorry that he made man, and he was grieved in his heart as what he saw. Now, there's something very important that we need to note about what Moses says here. What Moses is not saying here is that God realizes that he made a mistake. That is not what, God, that, that is not what Moses is saying here about the Lord, nor is Moses painting the picture here of God seeing a world that is out of control that he has to all of a sudden react to. I understand that within the word of God, we know and need to know that God is omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing. And he is also in his all-knowingness, he's immutable, meaning that he will never not know everything. He is always going to be the same. He cannot learn, nor can he unlearn anything. And as such, we know that God, as, as he created everything, even before he created everything, because he is God, he knew the way the world was going to go. And we need to know that as well. And we need to know that here, as he speaks this, that he is not here reacting and learning and trying to figure out what he needs to do about it. And I say that because there is a very real movement within the worlds and within churches today to speak about the Lord not being quite as omniscient as the Bible would show him to be. There is a great movement within the church today, that what is called open theism. This idea that God, well, he, he is learning right along with us. And that's a lie. That is a lie, an attack on the truth of what we see God's nature is represented in the word of God. And this is a primary subject here of the idea that God, as he set everything in motion and he watched the world turn and he watched things develop, that every time that we see things like the flood or things like Jesus being sent to the earth to die for humanity, well, that that was a reaction that God made as he was learning and moving forward. And we need to understand that that is not the case. We need to understand that what is represented here is not God seeing there and being sorry and grieved because he's like, oh no, what am I going to do? But he's sorry and grieved because of what he knows he has to do. 
because of what he knows he has to do and what is it what is needing to be done. God is not caught off guard ever. I hope you understand that. I hope you understand that God is never caught off guard, but God is always, he is always grieved by evil. God is always grieved by sin. The sin and the wickedness there in Noah's day and the sin and wickedness in our day as well. We need to realize that. That God is grieved at the evil of this world. And that's why he did something about it with Jesus. I'm so thankful for that. That his grief there over sin and the separation that it causes, that he did something about it. And he has to do something about it. And in this case, he has to do something about it and does something about it, not only because he sees what is happening, but also because he's righteous. And as righteous, there is consequences for sin, consequences that he allows, that he moves in, allows to move into place. As he is righteous, he has to judge sin. And so we see that here, that as Noah's world moves and works in the way that it is, understand that God, he he is not caught off guard. He's grieved over the sin and over what he knows he's going to have to do. Sin had been growing continually. Man's heart had been moving further away from the Lord. And that is the world that Noah lives in. And the world that Noah lives in, God speaks into of the reality that something it needs to be done. And he has a plan, not only of what he's going to do, but also, too, of how he is not going to be thwarted by the enemy. Because again, as the world that Noah lives in has, a, has a, a multitude of people, a population of people that are against the Lord, I believe fully influenced by the enemy and seeking to thwart the plan of God for redemption, well, God's plan is going to win out. And it's going to win out with his man Noah, who is walking in this perverse world, walking in a way that is righteous before everyone else. And that's the next thing that we see here. As we look first in verses 1 through 8 at Noah's world, well, we pick back up in verse 8, and we're going to repeat ourselves with that as we read through verse 12 to look at how Noah was walking in this world. Pick up with me there in verse 8 as we read and as we move through, where it says, But Noah, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. You see, as the world here and humanity was growing ever more sinful, we are introduced to Noah. Noah here, who it says, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And verse 9 says that he was a just man who was perfect in his generations, and that Noah, that he walked with God. That is such a stark contrast, isn't it? Such a stark contrast to the world around that is thinking and only has the intent of evil and sin always in man's heart. We have Noah over here who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We have Noah over here who is perfect in his generations. And that doesn't mean that he was sinless, but that means that he was undefiled by the world. That means that he was walking in a way that was not in a pattern after the rest of the world. No, as we see here, he was walking with God. And that's reminiscent of what we read last week with Noah's great-grandfather, Enoch, right? Like we read last week of Enoch there who walked with God there and then he wasn't because God took him. And that we talked about how Enoch, as he walked with the Lord, well, that was indicative of a relationship. That was indicative of a relationship and faith of walking in step with the Lord as he walked on this earth. Exactly what we see Noah do. 
Exactly what we see here with Noah. And it's that distinct walking with God that makes Noah so significant. And his faith in walking with God and knowing the, the, the tone and the tenor of the world around him, well, it's amazing to see that walk played out and that walk there shown to us. And it's shown to us on purpose, of course, because everything in the Bible is on purpose. It's shown to us for the purpose and the example of showing us that, hey, walking in a world that is perverse, walking in a world that is evil, that is growing ever more evil, well, that is a place in space where the people of God, where they should be, even, even as it was for Noah, even if they walk alone. Even if they walk by themselves, even as we in a world that is growing ever more sinful, a world that is growing ever darker, as we see the day coming when the Lord is going to return, well, it is becoming more and more, more and more telling of who is following the Lord biblically and who is not. Because we stick out. You should stick out as you walk with the Lord. As Noah walked with the Lord, no doubt he showed out to his neighbors. No doubt he showed out to those around him. And no doubt he's about to really show out as he's going to start constructing this massive boat there in his front yard. But we'll get to that in just a moment. Noah, it says, walked with God. And he walked with God in the face of a perverse world. And again, that should be an example and a challenge for us tonight, friends. A challenge for us to realize. And to realize that Noah was walking with the Lord before God called him to build the ark. And that's worth taking note of. Because so often what we can do is we look for the ark building, right? Like we look for the Lord coming to us and saying, all right, now I'm ready for you to build a boat. I'm ready for you to go here. I'm ready for you to go across the country, across the world. I'm ready for you to start this ministry, to open up your home to so-and-so, to teach the word of God. Like we're waiting for the Lord to say, do this big thing. And then we're like, when you say that, God, I'm there. When you tell me exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, man, I'm there. But God understands is telling us exactly what we're supposed to be doing every single day. And God is calling us to walk with him, not just in the big, not just in the ark building, but also in the mundane. To walk with him in the face of a perverse generation and a world that is constantly going towards and further towards evil and further away from the Lord. The Lord is calling us in his word to walk with him in the day to day and to walk with him faithfully. That's what Noah was doing. Noah did that even ever before God came to him and said, hey, let's build an ark. Noah was faithful in the mundane. Noah was faithful in the day-to-day. And that's something that we should be. That's something that we have to be, friends, because it's in the day-to-day that the Lord is going to show our, our walking out to those around us. It's in the day-to-day that the people at work are going to see our behavior. The people at the grocery store are going to see our behavior. Our friends around us, our family members are going to see the Lord in our day-to-day, not just in the big things. If we wait for the big things in our life to show the Lord, we're not going to be showing the Lord nearly as much as we're called to. And so Noah walked with God in the face of a perverse generation. He walked with God faithfully in the mundane. And that speaks to us, friends, as something that we should be doing. And as Noah did that, he was faithful in the mundane, he was faithful in the everyday. Well, then the Lord did come to him. And we know this, it's the most recognizable thing with Noah. I mean, that's what we think of. When you think of Noah, you think of the ark. And that's exactly what we see next as we come to verse 13, where we see as Noah's world and Noah's walk, now we come to Noah's ark, seeing there what God said to him and how Noah was continuing to be obedient. Well, in verse 13, it says, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. 
For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and it's width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall also make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall also make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. And of the birds of their kind, of animal, animals after, after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten. You shall gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them. And verse 22 says, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. Again, arguably the most recognizable thing when it comes to Noah is the ark that God tells him to build. And for good reason. We see that this watercraft is going to be that which saved the human race as well as the, the animal kingdom that God had created. And as such, it was also impressive just in its sheer size. I mean, the first thing that we need to look at tonight is the ark's magnitude. I mean, you think about the setting in which Noah is living, and you think about what God is calling him to do. I mean, the ark was as long as a 30-story building is high. I mean, about 450 feet long. It was also 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. And what is described is not really a, a boat. Like some critics of the Bible are like, oh, that doesn't make sense. How would you, where's the rudder? Where's the sails? Like he wasn't sailing this thing right? Like he was getting in this thing to survive. That, that's what Noah was doing here. But, but I, what, I, what I like is as we see it here and we can, we can measure out or have in our mind the idea of how big it was, I, I like to compare things. I really do. And so like when it comes to ships and things like that, I put up, and there's a, maybe a slide up here in a moment of, you know, like the Titanic. That's the most famous ship in like all the world. And, you know, side note, I, I'm a nerd when it comes to shipwrecks. I love shipwrecks. Something about them is just so amazing. Um, and the Titanic is just kind of almost cool, but there are so many other cool ones. We can talk about that later. Anyways, Noah's Ark, about 450 feet long. The Titanic, 882. It's actually 882.73 feet long, but that's whatever. And then 747, uh, 747 plane, you know, 251 feet. So that gives us a good idea of how long it was. I like, I like to find other sources as well, though. And so there's another slide to give us some more ideas since it's Star Wars Day and, you know, the Star Destroyer at the bottom and the Roman, the, the rebel blockade cruiser there. And the Ark is up there by the Empire State Building. And I don't know what those other things are. They don't matter because Star Wars is the coolest. But anyways, the sheer magnitude of this thing, the sheer magnitude of, of the Ark there in that day, well, it's rather impressive. And we see that the Lord, he tells him to build it. He tells him to craft it out of gopher wood and to cover the inside and the outside with pitch. And that would have been not only a waterproofing agent and a waterproofing move, but also would have been for, for preservation. And there are some who believe that that preservation of the pitch being, uh, that preservation factor of the pitch being put on it, it's so that one day the ark can be discovered someday and it can be a witness. And, thing. and that might be the case. I don't, I don't really know. What I more so think is the case is that the pitch was put on so as to preserve the ark as it was being built. 
Because the ark, understand, as, as I've mentioned before, it wasn't just built like in a day, right? Like our children's Bible, that's what it shows us. It's like, it's like God said, Noah, hey, build an ark. And then all of a sudden you turn the page and there's the ark. And Noah looks exactly the same, right? He hasn't aged a day. I don't know how that happened, but that's what our children's Bible shows us. But the truth of the matter is that in that day, just by default of technology that was available and the workforce that he had, you know, him and his three sons and their wives and his wife, I mean, quite honestly, we can see that that would have taken a long time. And the Bible actually gives us indicator into how long it took. And I, we can see that there at the last verse of chapter five, it says that Noah was 500 years old and that Noah had begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then the very next verse we have there, really the setting of the world that Noah lived in. And a few verses into chapter seven, we learn in verse six of chapter seven, that Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. And I, that's, that's easy math for me. I'm not a good math person, but that's easy math for me. That if Noah is 500 years old before he's building the ark, and then he's 600 years old whenever the ark is built, well, there's about 100 years worth of time there that homeboy's building the ark. And I believe that as he put the pitch on there, it would be in sections as he built so as to preserve it and to continue there as he built the ark. And so the sheer magnitude is something worth noting when it comes to, to Noah and the ark. It, it was a big task that the Lord called him to. But also to not only the magnitude of this project, but also the attitude of Noah. Well, that is something also for us to take hold of as well. As you can imagine, Noah, there as you read the narrative, like we think about it, he's been walking with the Lord faithfully day in and day out in the mundane. He's been faithful, no doubt, and, and he knows that. He knows that as he's walking, that he's different and distinct than his neighbors. Surely his neighbors know that as well. We'll talk more about that in a second. But then here comes the Lord and says, hey, hey, faithful guy, I want you to build me an ark. And notice that as he tells him first to build it, and he doesn't tell him why right off the bat, does he? Like he doesn't lead with, hey, I want you to build an ark because I'm going to send a flood to wipe out humanity. No, he's just like, hey, I want you to build, I want you to, want you to build me an ark. This is how big I want it to be. This is what I want it to be made out of. This is what's going to happen. And then he's like, and here's why. And you have to imagine Noah in that moment as, as the Lord comes to him and says that. As the Lord comes to him and says, hey, I want you to do it. And I love what the Bible says there in verse 22 where it says, thus Noah, having taken this all in, knowing what's going to happen, it says in verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Noah makes the choice to obey. Noah makes the choice to say, all right, you're calling me to this? All right, I'm going to do it. And the start of it is impressive. Now, don't get me wrong. That, that is very impressive. It's impressive to see that as the Lord lays this thing out, you can just imagine like these, this, this idea in his mind as he's like, it's going to be this many cubits long, high, wide, all these things. And Noah's just like thinking in his brain, he's like, that's big. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, going to be, that's going to be big. But yet he starts it. And this attitude in starting it is faith and faithful to the Lord, as is his walking with the Lord. But not only is he faithful in the start, but he's also faithful to see it through again, over the course of a hundred years worth of time. And the attitude of Noah as he builds, it stays the same. It has to stay the same because he sees it through. And you have to believe that in the world that he lived in, where every thought and intent of every, every single person was only evil continually, that as he was building that, that that attitude, man, the temptation for that attitude to change, it, it would have been great. I mean, just think about as, as Noah's building this giant boat, this giant boat in his front yard because of a flood that's about to come. And you'll remember that up to this point, it hasn't rained yet, right? 
like Noah's world pre-flood is a place where, where, where it hadn't rained. Like the, the world, we're going to learn next week as we watch the flood and as we dive deeper into that, as we're going to see there that the windows of heaven broken up, have broken, were breaking up. And if you were with us, as we talked about the creation of everything, we spoke of this water canopy that covered the entire earth. And that, I fully believe, as it says the windows of heaven opened up, is that water canopy dumping all of its water there on the ground. And we'll talk more about that next time. But up to this point, it hasn't rained. And here is Noah out in his front yard building this 450-foot-long shoebox boats. And he's doing it in the face of a perverse generation. You can imagine as people come to him like, hey, what are you doing? You know, like, why are you cutting down all of our trees? Because it didn't say that God provided those for him. He had to go get them. He had to cut them down. He had to process them, turn them into timber. And then he had to start putting them together. You can imagine people coming and be like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And he, I'm sure, was faithful to speak to it. I'm sure Noah was faithful to speak and say, God's told me to do this. As he had walked faithfully in the mundane, as he walked faithfully in the face of a perverse generation over and over again, he was faithful, I'm sure, to say over and over again, I'm, I'm building this because God told me to. And he did that for 100 years. Imagine that. Imagine that. Year 1 through 10, you're bold. Year 20 through 60, you're, you're still bold, but you're maybe questioning it every now and then. Year 80 to 100, you don't know what you're doing. It's just kind of like, I'm just building this thing. God said it's going to fl- flood, I guess. I don't know. But he's faithful all the way through it. And that's just in the face of the skeptic. You have to think, too, about the world that he's living in. Think about the hatred and the wickedness of that culture he lived in, a wickedness that was driven by Satan. Like, like again, going back to the supernatural aspects of the Bible and of our life lived with the Lord. Like you have to think that as these angels, these sons of God, were there on the earth continually having sexual relationships with women, that there were consistent wickedness that was just growing and being propagated there in the world. And so you can imagine the world that Noah lived in, living in just the mundane, going with the Lord, that would have been hard enough. But now he's actively working in a plan to save humanity and to preserve the line for the Savior. You can bet Satan was upset. You can bet that Satan warred against that. I I have to wonder, and I don't want to go too far down a rabbit trail, but you have to wonder, were there like attempts on Noah's life for this? I mean, Satan is absolutely against the Lord, and he is against the people of the Lord and the work of the Lord. So why would we think that over the span of a hundred years, Noah building an ark, Noah building something so as to preserve the line of humans so the Messiah could come, that Satan wasn't going to say, let's take this guy out. But yet Noah was faithful. Noah was faithful to continue to build even with the opposition from the enemy. And Noah was faithful to build and continue even with the inner responses and the inner questioning questioning and the temptations. I have no doubt in his mind that he had the temptation to quit because we all as humans have temptations to quit the work of the Lord from time to time. As we're thinking there and we're working, living in the mundane or working on something that we know God has called us to because of discouragement from the enemy or because of sin that tempts us, the desire to quit is there often. And I'm sure it was there for Noah. But yet Noah's attitude of faithfulness sustained. Noah's attitude of faithfulness sustained all the way through until, of course, as we know, the ark was built and completed and he's going to get on and everything's going to happen as we're about to read in just a moment. And again, what an amazing thing for us to see. An amazing call and challenge, an example for us to take note of. As the same types of attack, the same types of questioning from a world that just doesn't get it. 
from a world that sees the, the church should see our lives following in faith with the Lord and ask questions. As the world that we live in does that still, we should be those that like Noah are saying, yeah, God called me to this. I'm walking in it. Or when the world around us becomes antagonistic, albeit just outright enraged against the church and us sticking with the word of God, as an attack comes from the enemy and from the world who he is the ruler of at this point in time. Well, the church really needs to ask. And the question is becoming more and more of an important thing to ask. Are we going to stand and stick with the Bible and stick with the Lord? Or are we going to fold? Noah didn't fold. And that's an example to us. And then also too with the inner questioning, the inner temptation to quit that we all have. You know, we have to ask that often and ask the Lord often. I, I know for me, I need the Lord often to remind me of my call, to remind me of my purpose in this world, to serve Him and glorify Him as a believer, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. I need that. And I know you need that too because you're a sinner just like me. And we have to let the Lord lead us and encourage us so that we don't quit. And Noah, and he's an example for that for us. He's an example of one who is faithful all the way through. Again, in the mundane, and here at the big thing. And again, mission, walking with the Lord, you know it always brings opposition. And we need to be faithful to lean into the Lord in that, as Noah did, I fully believe. Noah was faithful, and we see that faith play out. And as we see that faith play out, we of course come now to, as he's built the ark, well, he eventually finishes it, and then comes the big thing that we all know the ark was built for, and that is the flood. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to read the entire account of the flood, all of chapter 7, but we're not going to talk about all of it. That's for more of next week of what we're going to talk about as we move through the flood and look at some things about it. But I do want to read the whole thing so we have that moving around in our brain. But there's another aspect tonight or something that we're going to hone in on besides the entire event of the flood. But let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 7 and read together through verse 24 as we begin to wind down. Where it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And you shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. And so Noah with his sons, his wife and his son's wives, they went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. And of the clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two, they went into the ark of, to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. And in the 600th year of Noah's life, the second month, the 17th day of the month, on the day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And on the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, well, they entered the ark, and they and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, they went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. And now the flood was on the earth forty days, and the waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. 
And the waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole of heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all the mountains were covered, and all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts of every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land, it died. And so he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Again, read the whole chapter to have it in our mind, but only going to be speaking about one thing that we noticed there at the beginning of the chapter where you notice that as the ark is completed, Noah has been faithful over a hundred years to build, faithful to complete the work that God has called him to. You notice that as it is complete, that God speaks to Noah and tells him to come into the ark. And Noah, he, he does this, notice he's obedient continually, but he does this, the Bible shows us, seven days before it actually starts to rain on the ground. Like as you, again, as you, as you, as you read and look at pictures, maybe of a children's Bible or like watch a, a, a movie that has this, like it's always this like epic thing where like the rain, like he's like, he drives the last nail into the ark and the rain is like starting. Clouds are rolling in and it's like, oh, I got to get in a boat. And like all the animals are coming in, but that's, that's not what the Bible shows us happened. The Bible shows us happened that what Noah did, or as Noah finished the ark, that God says, all right, come in. Time to come into the ark. And then he sets Noah in there with his wife and with his sons and with their wives and a myriad of stinky animals for seven days. For seven days before it ever starts raining, Noah and his family are sitting in there. And that, in that moment, you know, again, Noah's been faithful for the Lord, with the Lord all of his life. Walking with him in the mundane, walking with him over a hundred years, serving him and working with him and building the ark, ready for the flood to come. I have to imagine that seven days, man, that, that, that was worse than all of it. I have to imagine that seven days sitting in there with the door shut, him and his family sitting in there just waiting for this thing called rain to all of a sudden start coming out of the sky. He has no idea what that means. He's like, okay. But that right there was a test. That right there was a test. And Noah, we have to believe he had a choice just in the same way that we have a choice to continue to be faithful to the Lord, to continue to walk in faith with the Lord, or to say, I'm, done. I'm getting off this boat. <laughs> These animals stink. My wife is upset. My kids are upset. This, this isn't worth it. To get off that boat. And as such, to face judgment, I'm fully convinced that there would have been a very different story that we read here. But we see that Noah is faithful to sit there those seven days. We know that he rides out, of course, all of it. And, and it's easy to skip over, but important for us to notice. And something that I fully believe is why Noah was able to stay in the boat and why he had faith to continue to stay in the boat is because you notice there at the first that God didn't say, hey, Noah, go in. That God didn't speak to Noah and say, hey, get on. No, God called out to Noah and said, hey, come into the ark. And you'll miss it. It's easy to miss if you just skip right over it, but it's something that's so important for us to notice is in the same way that God, that God had called Noah, who was faithful in the mundane and faithful in the big and faithful to get on the ark, that God too, it is shown to us, was faithful to be with him every step of the way. And as such, when he said, hey, come onto the ark, it shows us that God, he was already in there. That God was already in there. The way of salvation for Noah and his family, God already established it. 
God was already in there and just inviting them, hey, you've done this, you've walked this, come into it. Come meet me in this. And my friends, that is something for us not to, not to miss tonight. Because as Noah's life is an example to us in the mundane to walk with him and to serve him faithfully in, the, in this world, and in the big things that he calls us to, in a life of serving him when he speaks to us specifically and we can have faith no matter the opposition, and as the Lord continually calls us to walk in the salvation that he has and the relationship that he offers, we need to know that he's already there. And as he calls us and as he leads us, that he is presence and he will not leave us. And that is something that is so important for us to realize tonight as we see example after example after example of Noah's life being faithful. That as he was faithful, God was faithful. And as we are faithful, we need to understand that God is faithful. And I love that about the Word of God, that it shows us continually over and over again that no matter what it is that God calls us to, whether it's mundane or big or hard or whatever it is, that He's going to meet us and He's going to lead us, that He calls us to Himself to serve Him. And He is not going to abandon us in that. And maybe for you tonight, that's something that you need to hear. I know for me, it's something I need to hear, not just tonight, but throughout my life, to remember that God is with me as I walk in this world a world that is becoming more and more like Noah's, uh, that we shouldn't be surprised about. I mean, Jesus says, I believe it's Matthew 24, 37, that there in the, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days before the Son of Man returns. We shouldn't be surprised that this world is going the way that it's going. The Bible shows us that it's evil. The Bible shows us it's going to continue to be evil and how much harder it's going to be for us as believers to walk with Him in this world. But yet, God is with us how much harder it is to walk in this world and to serve Him in the big things that He calls us to. Things that when He says, hey, I want you to do this specific thing, whether it's walking across your office to go speak to that person you know doesn't like you and doesn't love Jesus, or going across the world to a place where someone might eat you, but you're supposed to tell them about Jesus. Well, you can trust that God's going to be with you in both of those scenarios. And He's not going to leave you. That God is faithful every step of the way to lead us and to meet us, to never leave us as we follow after Him. And so if that's you tonight that needs to hear that, hear that. And as you hear that, live as if that's the truth. Live as if it's the truth tonight and tomorrow, should the Lord bring tomorrow, to know that God is with us. And as He's calling us to live for Him, biblical lives set apart in this world, holy as He is holy, that He's going to be with us in that too. And as He was faithful with Noah, He's going to be faithful with us. And so we, like Noah, and like so many within the Word of God like Noah, we can know that we can be faithful to Him as well, to obey the call that He has in our life and to walk forward with Him boldly, knowing that He's there and He's going to be with us.